0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Romans 12, 19 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to to Christ. Christ.
1: Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Hello, everybody. Uh, Just want to give us a quick recap uh, of where we've been and where we're going. With the current series, uh, we're in the middle of a series right now called Worship, Connect, and Serve. Those are three headings. And we've got six practices. These are what we're calling health practices of... Um, Of Christian discipleship, of following Christ, if if we implement these practices uh, habitually, uh, the chances of our being spiritually healthy go way up. If we don't, then our chances of being spiritually healthy go down. And so we're encouraging everybody to to habituate uh, these six things. And uh, we've already been uh, uh, over the first two, which are under the worship heading. Uh, to, number one, be fully present with the church every Sunday. Uh, That means when you're in town. It also means when you're out of town, do your best to be with the body of Christ every Lord's Day. And then also to be with Jesus every day, which we covered last week. Uh, And then uh, in the future, there are going to be two messages under the serve category. Uh, Strengthen the church by serving and giving, and then enhance flourishing by serving your work, your world, and people in need. And today we're beginning the two weeks under the Connect heading. Uh, One is to take every opportunity to gather with your group, and we've actually got these right in front of you, right next to the Bibles. Uh, We want to invite you, if you don't have a group at Christ Pres, to pull one of these out, to fill it out, put it on the end of your row, uh, and leave it there. Somebody will pick it up after the service. That you're not signing up for anything. You're just saying, hey, I want to know more about what it means to be part of a group and and maybe I could be part of one. So uh, so that would be the first under Connect is to take every opportunity to gather with your group. And then the final one would be to befriend and bring in people who don't have a church. And so so today we're going to start again the, the two-week uh, section under Connect. And so I want to start this way. The vision for community under Jesus Christ is uh, it's counterintuitive it's it's radically different than community as we understand it uh, otherwise and uh, uh, the reason why it's counterintuitive is that that in Christ enemies are actually prospective friends and family members not just people we have affinity with but but people who are actually enemies uh, in the world are hostile to us, or maybe we're accustomed to being hostile toward them or toward their kind, in Christ they become potential family. That sets Christian community apart in a pretty significant way. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, your primary community can no longer just be, it can certainly include, but it, it can no longer just be. People who think like you, talk like you, vote like you, spend money like you, uh, play and recreate like you, worship in the way that you prefer to worship, uh, and, and, and who support your goals and your appetites and your preferences. Okay? That can be part of your community, but your, your vision for community needs to be much bigger than people who are like you. You know, Scott McKnight, who's a, a scholar and a uh, um, uh, a professor uh, in seminary, uh, talks about the Christian community as being a fellowship of difference, T.S., a fellowship of difference, different people. And there are three disorienting realities about this this fellowship of difference that, that, that I'm going to cover this morning from our text from Romans, uh, three disorienting realities that that anyone who wants to be shaped uh, by Christian community and be part of Christian community has to embrace disorienting sinfulness, disorienting otherness, and disorienting outwardness. And so let's start with the first disorienting sinfulness. We've already talked about how being a disciple, that's, that's a Bible word, a disciple of Jesus Christ is, is a learner, a follower. And, and when you learn and when you're following Jesus, you're always seeking to grow. You're always seeking to take the next, next step toward becoming more like Christ and less centered on self. And, and one of the things that the passage in front of us affirms is that this kind of growth, this kind of learning, this kind of progress can only happen in the friction and discomfort of relationships between people who have sin in their lives. You know, a couple of Harvard students did a study uh, recently and they, they called it CrossFit as Church, question mark. CrossFit as Church, you can Google it. The whole study is available. But these two students from Harvard observe that fitness tribes, which are are ubiquitous these days, there's CrossFit, there's Iron Tribe, uh, there's all sorts of different options. But fitness tribes today, they observe, are very religious in nature. And they are becoming fitness tribes like CrossFit to many an alternative to things like church, Uh, The the article says this, these are communities that are helping people aspire toward goals to transform themselves and their work and also to work toward change while holding each other accountable to make things better. That that sounds a lot like the vision of a a healthy church. What's notable here about CrossFit that that these two students observed Is that inside CrossFit, there is a universal acceptance of high levels of accountability toward one another. Universal acceptance to submit to each other. And there's freedom to say to one another, you have to be here with us five times a week in order for this to work. You have to do the diet that we're all on, you have to follow the nutrition principles. And you have to push yourself, and you have to push yourself physically so hard that it's going to bring intense discomfort, but the kind of discomfort that is designed to lead to your health. That sounds actually a lot like what a well-functioning church community is supposed to be like. But it's a different kind of accountability. It's an accountability not so much for your physical fitness as it is for your, uh, your character fitness, your capacity, which, which should always be a growing capacity, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it, it summarized that, that vision right here in verse 9 where Paul says, abhor or, or hate or despise what is evil. This is part of how Christian community is supposed to look. You're supposed to hate what's evil. And you're supposed to cling together to what is good, and and there's an accountability dynamic to this, just like there's a a physical, like body fitness accountability dynamic in in CrossFit, according to the Harvard students. You in CrossFit, it's you know everybody understands you've got to submit your body. What are you doing? You know, only coming to to work out with us one time a week. We agreed on five. What are you doing? Eating you know, pizza and hot dogs uh, as the a, as a central part of your diet. What are you doing? Right? And, and in, a, in a fitness tribe, those are very acceptable confrontations. But, but let's say you went to your CrossFit. I know a lot of you do CrossFit. A lot of you do Iron Tribe. Some of you are like nationally ranked, and that's, that's amazing. But what if you went to CrossFit and somebody said to somebody else, what are you doing dating that person? What are you doing drinking so much? What are you doing devouring this kind of website so much? What are you doing conducting your business in this way? What are you doing lying like that? What are you doing spending every Sunday at the lake? What are you doing belittling your kids like that? The response, if if you took that kind of accountability in a CrossFit, would be, who in the world do you think you are? Get away from me, you, 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 you fundamentalist, right? But in Christian community, These kinds of questions among one another are fair game. They are to be expected from a spirit of concern, not a spirit of judgment, but a spirit of concern. I'm concerned about your health. Right? So so I'm going to credit Gordon Mote with uh, this slight uh, change in, in the lyric of Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, and I still am. That is actually what we followers of Jesus Christ ought to be saying to one another. Was blind, and and in so many ways, I still am, and I need you. We need each other. I need you to help me see in ways that I don't see so that I can become more healthy. You know, Christian growth is… So much more than me and Jesus, me and the Bible, and me and my favorite podcasts. Christian growth and development is so much, it's embodied, it's incarnational, it's a people together, it's a tribe. The kingdom of God is a tribe where we press one another and spur one another on like, like the spurs on the side of a horse toward love and good deeds, following Jesus Christ is and has to be a community affair, has to be, for it to, to flourish. So Rebecca McLaughlin is a British intellectual. She's also a Christian. And she observes in an article that she recently wrote uh, where she says, uh, many of us leave or you know, check out uh, or distance ourselves from church life because we become disillusioned with other people. But what if disillusionment is part of the point And then she quotes Bonhoeffer, where Bonhoeffer says in Life Together, "...innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. A wish dream. But God speedily shatters those dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great sense of disillusionment with others with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, disillusionment with ourselves. Bonhoeffer goes on disillusionment is not the end of Christian community, but rather it is the entry point to Christian community. How about that? You know, Dostoevsky said similar things in Brothers Karamazov when he, when he says love in action, in other words, real love, kind of the pedestrian on the ground kind of love that, that, that we're called to, to give to one another and receive from one another. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing when you compare it to the love in dreams. Right? Love is such a, a, a romantic, wonderful, sentimental thought until you have to love or until you have to receive Love, and and very important to hear this from Bonhoeffer, disillusionment is not the end of Christian community, but rather the entry point. You actually haven't experienced Christian community until somebody has had to confess sin to somebody else, until somebody else has had to forgive somebody else, and until those somebody else's have reconciled and and, and sought repair to whatever's been damaged. That's the very beginning of your distinctly Christ-centered relationship with that person. the first sermon of this series, one of the main points was a core truth to Christianity is that everybody's a hypocrite. Every one of us is a hypocrite. Every one of us lives inconsistently with what we say we believe. And, And as believers in Christ, as disciples of Christ, a huge part of our life's mission is to become less of one. But we need each other. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So, so there's this disorienting sinfulness, but that, that's actually, even our sinfulness can be leveraged and used by a sovereign God to, to, to refine us and, and make us more beautiful. But then there's a disorienting otherness, right? This also is a hallmark uh, that, that makes Christian community unique in the world. Because it's not just the tension of, of sin between people and the way we sin against each other. It's also a social tension that, that the gospel not only invites us into, but demands that we engage. You know, the church is not a social club. It's not a consumer good. You know, the dominant metaphor throughout the Bible for Christian community is family. You notice how many times in in especially the Apostle Paul's writing, you're my brothers. You're my brothers. The book of Hebrews, you know, Jesus is our great high priest who's not ashamed to, to, to call us our brothers, call us our, His brothers and sisters. You know, we've got fathers in the faith. We've got children in the faith, uh, and so on. We, we are called to be a family. And, you know, how many of us, let, let's just think about our own nuclear families. How many of us Don't raise your hand because it's a trick question. I don't want to embarrass you. But how how many of us would say, I chose members of my family? Now, those of you who are married, maybe you would say, I I chose the person I married. Or those of you who adopted a child, you say, well, we chose this person to be our child. Well, you did and you didn't. You know, I've said this before. My wife, Patty, she's been married to 15 different men. She's chosen every single one of them. And they've all been me. We've been married almost 25 years. I, I've been a, I was a different man here, different man here, different man here, different man here. Sometimes I got better. Sometimes I got worse in, in these different seasons. She chose me every time. She's been married to 15 different men. She is now married not to the guy that she chose. And it works the same with our kids. Our, our kids are very different now than they were when we were, they were teenagers or young teenagers and children. And now one's in their 20s and another's a 16-year-old. A, you know, a, a, a they're very different now than they were. And they'll be different in five years than they are now. We don't choose. Even if we think we do, we don't choose them. You're not allowed to choose your family. God chooses your family for you. That's true about community in Christ. You know, who's going to say to their child... Or to their spouse. Because you are a Democrat now, or because you just joined the NRA, or because you're a Baptist, or got a tattoo, or moving to Los Angeles, we're not family anymore. You're not gonna say that. You're gonna say, how do we work this out? How do we make this work? We're different, you know, than we, we're more different than we used to be on the basis of whatever. How are we gonna work this out? How are we gonna stay close? How are we going to learn from each other in this new dynamic, right? That's what you're going to do with your your blood family. Why on earth would you not do that with your family that's going to last longer than your blood family? The church of Jesus Christ, the eternal family that we're all part of, that all nuclear family will give way to in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, Christian community is fiercely cross cultural. It's there in Galatians 3.28, in Christ, that, you know, this is Paul, like a super Jewish guy. If there was ever a Jewish guy, it was Paul. He says, in Jesus Christ, I'm not chiefly Jewish anymore. I, I am a Christian before I'm Jewish. Or, you know, if it's me, I'm a Christian before I'm a white man. I'm a Christian before I'm, you know, wealthy or, or poor. I'm a Christian before I am a Saul's The moment you walk into these doors with your nuclear family, your nuclear family is actually your second family. Do 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 we all understand that? Your nuclear family is your second family. The body of Christ, if you identify as a Christian, is your first family. Of course, when your nuclear family is part of that family, awesome, we get to do it all together. But even Jesus talks about how, you know, the kingdom of God will sometimes separate siblings from one another and parents from their children because it's your first family. It's the one that's going to last forever and ever and ever. But Paul says in Christ, there's no Gentile or Jew. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. He's talking about pecking orders here. It doesn't say that like, you're not a woman or a man anymore. It doesn't say you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not a Jew or Gentile anymore. You, you, you keep those identities. They're just secondary to the, to the identity of being a person of, of Christ. We're all one, Paul says, in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, he talks about how dividing walls of hostility have been broken down between a holy God and sinful people. And because of that, it is incumbent upon us to work hard to break down dividing walls of hostility between us, to be reconciling people. Social, the, the, the maintaining of social and cultural hurdles inside the community of Christ is fiercely prohibited. You should never have to audition for belonging. You should never have to audition to be accepted and embraced and valued. You should never have to audition to be on the inner ring of Christian community. Jesus' arms are open to every nation, tribe, tongue, people, group, economic strata, and so on. You know, Jew and Gentile, this this Jew and Gentile contrast and, and bringing together throughout the Bible, it's code. You know, Jews and Gentiles, that's code for your opposite. You know, then it meant your ethnic opposite, your dietary opposite, your socio-political opposite, your liturgical opposite, and your cultural opposites, the fellowship of difference. You know, C.S. Lewis said, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their minds so says C.S. Lewis. Part of what it means for dogs and cats to grow up together is to pay close, careful attention to one another's pain and to take close, careful responsibility for one another's pain. Out there, we don't take responsibility for each other's pain. We dismiss each other's narratives. We dismiss each other's stories and experiences. In here, that's forbidden. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So, a little bit over a decade ago, I was a racist and didn't realize it. Had no idea. And I was put by God in community with several people of color, and ever since then, I was, once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, and I still am. But one of the things that, that, that's been brought to my attention, especially in the past few years, as I've engaged with with pastors of color and, and other men and women of color, particularly in the black community, is how painful it is for a black person to hear the words, all lives matter. How utterly painful that is, because that's the whole point of saying black lives matter. Black lives matter means all lives matter. You get that? So so out in the world is the only place where statements like that should be categorically dismissed and not empathized with. We should just expect that in the hostile political climate that we're in, but inside the church, inexcusable to dismiss somebody else's declaration of pain. Give you an example. I know four families here in Nashville, some of them are part of our church, grew up together in biracial homes where mom was white and dad was black and some of the kids had lighter skin, lighter skin and some of the kids had darker skin. Guess who had the easier life and guess who had the harder life in all four of those families? I'm not going to tell you because I think you already know the answer. Weep with those who weep. Don't dismiss those who weep. But it applies well beyond race. It includes economic pain, The pain of being a part of a certain gender, and and men and women both have their unique hurts. Political pain, personality-related pain, lifestyle-related pain, regardless. Social ranks, pecking orders, inner rings and outer rings are supposed to be completely gone the moment you walk through the red doors that represent the blood of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones left a very successful... Uh, career as a physician, he was, you know, in the elite gatekeeper circles, uh, you know, and and uh, became a pastor. And his first assignment was on the shores of Wales in a blue-collar community of people who did not have the, anything close to the education that he did. People of humble means. And one day he he, he relays uh, autobiographically about how he read Ephesians chapter one verse fifteen, where it says, "You've." I have heard, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people. For all God's people. And at that point, Lloyd-Jones said it dawned on him. He says, I realized that I'd become a Christian because people, this is how I knew I was a Christian, Lloyd-Jones says, because people whom I would have never chosen, people of a different class, a different race, a different temperament, people I would have never liked I feel a bond with them. I feel a connection. I sense we are related to the Father through grace and therefore to each other. You know, Lloyd-Jones is saying this. You know that Christian community has begun when you start to have two feelings simultaneously with your other, whoever your other is. Friction, because you didn't choose your family. Your family was chosen for you. And warmth, sympathy. A desire to engage and to understand and to empathize and to advocate. Disorienting otherness. And then the last mark here that Paul highlights is a disorienting outwardness. And so, so the outwardness actually starts in here. It, 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 you could actually look at, at the church as sort of the CrossFit center to prepare to love across the lines of difference out there. And to have a a really effective witness out there for the gospel, we we can practice in here. Because in ways that we we don't expect to be forgiven out there, we do expect to be forgiven in here. In the ways that, that, that we don't expect an apology out there, we do expect an apology in here. Both from others and from ourselves. In church is where we ought to practice outwardness for the rest of our lives. You know, Re- Rebecca McLaughlin, again, uh, that I quoted a minute ago, she, she, she wrote an article recently called, Why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church. And a friend observed to her, I've noticed that you and your husband, you haven't been sitting in church together lately. Like, I noticed you're both in the room, but you're not sitting together. Is something wrong? And she said, no, actually, something's right. And then she went to verse 13 here, practice hospitality, which in the Greek means the love of strangers, and, and, and she says, one of the reasons why we do not sit together in church is that the church is our first family, and our nuclear family is our second family. And so as a nuclear family, we, we, we have chosen, that doesn't mean everybody has to do this, but, but, but it doesn't mean you're wrong for sitting next to somebody you're, you're in family with, okay? So keep sitting with your family if that's what you, but, but, but her point is important. She says, outsiders should not feel like outsiders for long. They shouldn't. And, and so, we decided as a family, that's part of our ministry in the church, is to help people who appear to feel like outsiders not feel that way any longer. So, every week, I, you know, I asked uh, our, our, I asked Jen Seeger, uh, who's our, kind of keeps track of our, our guests, I said, how many first-time guests does, you know, show up at Christ Prez every Sunday? You know what the average is every Sunday, first-time guests show up at Christ Prez? Forty-two. There are likely somewhere around 42 people at Christ Press this morning who should not feel like outsiders for long. And this is a remarkable thing about our church. This is actually something we hear a lot of of how intentional so many of you are at making sure that outsiders don't feel like, like that for long. Strangers turning being turned into friends, friends turned into family, and so on. But, but again, this is, this is both a family and also a training center for when we go out in the world. And I'm, we're going to touch on this more in the last two sermons, but I'll, I'll close with, with this thought because it's in the text. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Paul is just parroting Jesus Christ there from the Sermon on the Mount. And then verse 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Never avenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, so when 9-11 happened, the Twin Towers were uh, obliterated by airplanes. You know, a, a narrative started to develop, and in the narrative it's still actually quite alive today in the West, especially in the American West, that the problem with the world is religious fundamentalists. If just all the religious fundamentalists would go away, the world would be a peaceful place. you really believe that? See, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim's wife, been ministering in New York City for many years. They, passed, they pastored a lot of people through the 9-11 aftermath. And Kathy's observation is this. You know, the problem with the world is religious fundamentalists. Well, she says it really does depend on what your fundamentals are. Uh, and she says, I don't know anybody who's ever seen an Amish terrorist, right? Because the Amish, the Amish are forgivers. They are forgiving people in, in remarkable ways because they follow a Lord and a Savior who, that, that was His purpose and mission, was to come and to forgive. They take utterly seriously the call to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Here's, here's one example. In 2006, a a milkman um, kind of lost his mind and went into a, a small uh, Amish girls' school and opened fire and five of the girls were killed. And, and of course the, the Amish community was devastated and they wept and they mourned and they wailed and, and they, they had the funerals and came around each other. And then after that came time for the shooters funeral, and the entire Amish community showed up at the shooter's funeral and went out of their way to embrace the shooter's widow and to physically embrace the shooter's children and to tell them, God loves you. And they took up an offering of money and gave it to the shooter's widow in the name of Christ, who has forgiven us of so much. And you ask the question, I ask the question, how on earth? How on earth? It's a well-formed heart over time. It's a well-formed community over time who have come to know Jesus intimately. Jesus, who chose to be in community with sinners, who says to us, your sinfulness is disorienting to me, just as my righteousness is disorienting to you. Come as you are. I love you too much, though, to let you stay there. We were also Jesus's other, social disorientation. Your hope is completely pinned on the back of a first-century Middle Eastern Jew with dark skin who had no money, who never spoke a word of English, and who didn't share your politics. And yet here we are, just as he promised at the ends of the earth, about to gather around his table, because he'd rather die than be without us. The simple application here for all of us is to draw near to Jesus like we talked about in the last two weeks. And now, in light of that, to draw near to each other and, and to, to move toward the mess and not away from it because there's plenty of mess to go around in the church of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's as Abigail Van Buren said, it's a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And if, if you're looking to the church to be a museum for saints then you really have not gotten past looking at the church as a consumer good and as a club. And what Jesus is saying is, I've got so much more for you. Get to know my bride because she's pretty messed up and pretty amazing all at the same time, and she is part of the key to making you amazing. But it's going to be through friction, and it's going to be through family. All those things being said, I want to invite all of us to stand up now. And the kids are going to come back in and join their parents. And uh, right now is the time for those who are leading around the communion tables to make your way to your tables right now, please. And uh, let's all recite together this prayer that was first written by St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love where there is injury, pardon, where there is discord, union, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive." It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Pastor David, please be seated.